You know what we love about our Tacovas cowboy boots? You can wear them all year round and for literally any occasion. Of course, you can wear them at the rodeo or at the ranch, but since we're in New York City, we've been getting creative. I even wore mine with a polka dot dress and tights to Sarah's birthday party at a fun, trendy bar in New York City. Tacovas is Western to their core and they believe in Western for all, handmaking their boots from the most premium leathers. And if you can't make it to a store, visit tacovas.com, that's T E C O V A S.com, and point your toes west. And as a special bonus for you, Tacovas is throwing in a free trucker hat or ball cap worth $30 for all online orders over $100. Just use code F1 at checkout. Again, for a limited time, just enter code F1 at checkout to add a free logo hat to your order as a one-time gift from Tacovas. only at Tacovas.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to For the Girls. We are so excited for this episode, our first ever guest appearance, and it's the one and only Lily Herman. Today, we're going to talk to Lily about her F1 commentary and her new podcast, F1 Choosing Sides, and about why F1 is different, read better (laughs) than other sports, especially the big American sports. This is a hill we will die on, and hopefully by the end of the episode, you will be like us and won't shut up to everyone you know about how F1 is the best sport. And luckily, Lily is a pro at this, so you really won't need much convincing. Yes, very true. And hopefully many of you know and love Lily, but if you don't already, Lily is an award-winning writer. She's an F1 commentator, podcast host. Honestly, what does, doesn't she do? She writes <laughs> Yahoo's newsletter, The Yodel, and in the F1 world, she writes the amazing culture newsletter, Engine Failure, and also has a new podcast, as Sarah mentioned, called F1 Choosing Sides. And this is not just any old podcast. It is produced by Sports Illustrated Studios and iHeartRadio. And Lily's co-host is Michael Costa, who is a comedian and also a correspondent for none other than The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. So lots of star power on this podcast. And the premise of the show, Lily will dive much more into it, but just high level. She is the expert who dives deep into all the F1 teams and explains them to Michael, who at that point had never seen a single second of an F1 race. And it culminates in Michael declaring his loyalty to a team by the end of the season. So stay tuned for that. So, Lily, before we jump into your F1 commentary and expertise, we have to note for everyone that besides F1, you definitely have your finger on the pulse of all things pop culture. Your Instagram feed is slowly becoming my single source of news. So thank you for that. I feel very cultured. I feel very refined. (laughs) I'm so glad to hear it. Um, My feed today, just so people can get a glimpse, was a mix of the Jonathan Bailey, Matt Bomer news. Very important. Um, What else? Alice Oseman told me that the lo-fi hip hop beats girl on YouTube is down, which is like incredibly devastating to my entire life i'm at a point where i just post what i want it's slightly unhinged and i don't care you know like we've all reached that point both in adulthood and in the pandemic where anything goes (laughs) and and, the the feed be chaotic yeah (laughs) but thank you so much for having me so with that lily how did you first get into f1 f1 commentary what made you stick to the sport yeah so um so i I have never been a fan of the traditional American big four sports, right? We have football, basketball, baseball, and hockey in this country. 
I grew up in the American South and none of it took. <laughs> so, so that's kind of where, where I began. However, I've always been a fan of more obscure sports. I grew up in a swim family. Uh, I went to a high school. Yeah, I went to a high school where they've sent swimmers to the Olympics every Olympics since 1960. And wow. I, it's also a big, a big Whoa. sports high school. Again, it skipped over me. Um, but I was a runner, <laughs> a cyclist. I, I, I do follow figure skating somewhat. Uh, so, so being into sports, I know how to get into a sport. But yeah, like a lot of people, I, I got into F1 through Drive to Survive. Uh, I think there should be no shame in saying how you got into a sport. I think the whole idea that like we should gatekeep like you need to get into anything the correct way to begin with is already silly and ridiculous. But yeah, I got into Drive to Survive. And I've, I've said this before, I think Drive to Survive so perfectly captures the American reality TV sensibility. And even so, if you are someone who understands, you know, the nooks and crannies, the, the way, the flow of how that stuff works, you're going to really like Drive to Survive. And then even if you're not a huge reality tv show watcher in the u.s you understand the cadence of those shows they're everywhere and a lot of our you know a lot of our actual like prestige tv is based on reality tv aesthetics and reality tv filmmaking and all this other stuff so got into it through drive to survive and yeah immediately i was it came up on my netflix queue and then i was like what the f- is this is amazing like, <laughs> are, that's how we all um, felt yeah, I was like, yeah. these people are high camp, high drama, completely unnecessary, very extra. <laughs> and I, yeah, I was, I was in from the start. After that, it was all over. Um, my parents are still both very confused as to <laughs> it both personally and professionally. Uh, but, but Mine here we too. are. Yeah. <laughs> my mom's like, what's NASCAR? I was like, not, not NASCAR. <laughs> exactly. Like, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's where, that's how I got here. Chessa is our only kind of legacy F1 fan. So Chessa, you can explain <laughs> A that. rare breed. <laughs> my dad's Italian. So naturally we've grown mm. up watching Formula One. Like my grandma will call me like every race and be like, did you see Leclerc? Because she's also Mexican. So the accent is hilarious. Um, but yeah, we've been watching F1 forever. So my dad is, we have a group chat, the three of us with my dad in case he has any extra commentary for us. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but Tiggy and I are early pandemic, April 2020, looking for something to watch, being like, this looks interesting. And then fast forward, being starting an F1 podcast because we can't get enough. Yeah. So I I think you're right that people who understand American reality TV, it speaks to them. And also, I think a lot of the criticism, we've talked about this on the pod too, about how, oh, it kind of over-dramatizes these teammate rivalries and some of the audio is out of place. And I do think that is kind of an issue that the show is going to need to grapple with. But I think Americans, since they're so used to it, are easy. It's easy for them to be like, oh yeah, some of it's going to be fake. That's definitely over-dramatized, but still it gives you the essence, which is very... I have long said that there's a lot of overlap between Drive to Survive viewers and Bachelor viewers. So if you are into one, you can get into the other. (laughs) Because look, like I was laughing at all of these, I'm going to guess men on the f1 subreddit who've long been like oh my god the editing and putting in bits where they weren't said i'm like that's called frankenbiting and the bachelor community has been talking about that for two <laughs> decades like y'all are behind <laughs> catch up <laughs> like, like yes. this has literally been going on in yeah american reality tv culture for for decades so so it, yeah. it's just funny again that that uh, a lot of people pretend they're ahead of the curve with i liked f1 before it but they don't really understand yeah this whole like pop culture element of it that has actually been around for very a very long time in a very specific context yeah totally and i think that's so with some of the news about tapping into the reality tv 
hysteria of American culture, talking about translating that format to sports like tennis, sports like golf, you know, they're talking about drive to survive versions of these sports. And this gets into a little bit of foreshadowing of our topic. But like, do you think either of those sports will go down as well with a reality TV-esque show? Or is F1 sort of unique in that sense? I mean, the big issue is that a golf swing just isn't the same as a car (laughs) going 230 miles an hour. And there's not really ever going to be quite an equivalent. So I'm curious. I don't want to write them off entirely without seeing what changes they make. I also think that both sports don't have the simplicity of F1 in terms of, hey, 10 teams, 20 drivers. That's it. That's all you need to know. I know a little bit about tennis and I already, yeah, would be a little bit confused by certain aspects of it. Also, yeah, like scoring is different than than you just have to do the lap fastest, that kind of, you know, very basic unit of measurement, essentially, to like denote success. But yeah, I don't want to write them off. I will say my most recent engine failure issue actually talked about how IndyCar, which is the US-based open wheel mm-hmm. series, they have two drivers on the grid who started a YouTube series called Bus Bros. And it's just them goofing <laughs> off and being absurd. And Elizabeth Blackstock, who's this incredible motorsports journalist, she wrote about how she's like, Bus Bros has done more for me to like be excited about IndyCar than any Drive to Survive knockoff would. And I agree. Like, I think instead of all these series trying to be the drive to survive of fill in the blank sport, like find the thing that's going to be kind of good for whatever your sport is. So Bus Bros, which is not car sanctions just these two dudes one of them has a youtube channel uh, it's joseph newgarden and scott mclaughlin for those who follow indycar it's on joseph newgarden's channel uh, but it's just yeah it's like a funny weird look at indycar and i'm like that actually really suits the series much better than yeah. if they tried to convince me and also that is a very dramatic series and they've got a lot going on but i like that the you know i have a couple of friends who started watching it today and they're like this is very goofy and weird but i like it and now i like need to know <laughs> what's going on with the, the the drivers of this grid. I was like, yeah, that's the point of these sorts of things is to get you to want to watch the actual sport. <laughs> you know? So yeah, but I, I don't, golf is the one I'm really curious about. Tennis, they can be high drama in tennis. Yes. I, golf, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm intrigued, but I, I need more, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, speaking of tennis, so Michael uh, Costa, your co-host on the podcast is – into tennis. He has a tennis podcast and was a tennis coach. And so was it, is it easier to kind of explain F1 to him since he's coming from a sports background or how did you come up with the idea for this podcast? Cause it's such a fun and interesting concept. And the first few episodes have been so exciting. Thank you. Um, yeah. So choosing sides, I, I kind of got brought on in the podcast. I think the idea was in a very different form. This was like September of 2021. Uh, but it, it's evolved since then. But the basic idea is, so, to, so I guess to explain the concept, to make the PR people happy at uh, at 101 <laughs> and Sports Illustrated Studios, um, <laughs> and I heart. Uh, essentially, the concept is I am someone who is obviously into F1. Michael Costa knows nothing about Formula One other than, as he said in the first episode, he knows who Michael Schumacher was because it was a trick <laughs> trivia question. Other than that, he cannot tell you a thing about it, the difference between that and NASCAR or IndyCar. He doesn't know what all these things are. So he has not watched a lick of Drive to Survive. Yeah, he does hasn't watched YouTube videos. He doesn't know anything. So he is a true new fan in every sense of the word. And... Yeah. And so episode by episode, uh, we talk about the team's history, the main you know leadership he needs to know about and the drivers. 
And by the end of this, he is going to choose a team and a driver he wants to initially support. So I see it less as a tribalism around, you know, the classic like, oh, is Lewis Hamilton better or Max Verstappen better? It's more <laughs> just this idea of how do you build fandom? What does it mean to be a fan of something? And also really looking into why we all choose or or like certain things in our athletes and our teams. You know, there, there's a lot of psychology that goes into why we gravitate towards certain people or certain brands, right? So a lot of the podcast, as there's only a couple episodes that have been out um, as of our recording, but a lot of it is sort of watching him almost peel back the layers of what matters to him yeah. and, and him also finding out certain things do or don't. Uh, but yeah, but Michael is a comedian. And as you said, on uh, The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, in addition, he was a very, by his his own words, a very mediocre pro tennis player. He was ranked, <laughs> I think it was 864th in the world at one point. Hey. Um, so, so higher than right? us, yeah. Like yeah. I can't, I can't complain. But yeah, he also taught co or coached collegiate tennis. And so, what's really fun about him is he's someone who has seen what it takes to 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 play at an elite level of a sport or to get to that level. And also just see the sacrifices made by those who do, in fact, go the distance. So it's really fun, for instance, in our upcoming you know, Red Bull episodes, I remember talking to him about like a Max Verstappen type, right? Like a guy who from day one was engineered to be a Formula One race car driver. And, you know, Michael's able to say, oh, I know kids whose parents at age two, you know, set, had, you know held the racket to them and, and basically forced it into their hand. And we're like, OK, you're going to, yeah. you know. Did you see that quote recently about Joseph Verstappen, Max's dad, and how Max's dad was basically like, no, he didn't say I was going to be a champion in F1. He said that I was going to be like a delivery Yeah, driver. we address the but... Yas of it all because Yas is like, uh, you can't really explain Max and who he is without explaining Yas, and then what he's experienced also at Red Bull with Christian Horner yeah. and Helmut Marko and all these other characters. So, yeah, but it's it's it was really interesting kind of hearing Michael's perspective as someone who has seen kids who were raised by a Yas-like yeah. figure in tennis and how they turn out. He's seen the the real, you know, so he's able to relate to that sort of story, even though he knows nothing about Max Verstappen other than <laughs> what he's seen, what do we tell him, and and you know, he's seen a couple clips just so he knows the faces and the names, but. Yeah, like he, you know, he can't necessarily relate to Max specifically, but he kind of knows the story. He knows, he knows yeah. the archetype. So that's that's been, I think, <laughs> and fun, it's fun. the vibe. I'm yeah. really excited for the Red Bull episode or episodes because I feel like you teed them up so well at the end of the the last Mercedes episode about like you're talking about fandom and how do you become a fan? How do you build fandom? And like, it's funny seeing or talking about Yoss and Max. It almost like that experience translates in my mind to like some of the archetypical fans of Red Bull. You were like, they're sort of the broy fans. They're very serious about racing. Max is like, you know, heads down, sort of only like laser focused on one thing. And um, it's kind of funny to see Michael's reactions to the different teams. And I can't wait to hear his reaction to that one because there's definitely <laughs> some surprises. There were teams where I was like, oh, he's yeah. going to love this. And he was like, meh. And then there were teams where I was like, they're just okay. And he, or whatever. And he was like all in for, I mean, already, <laughs> you know, I think in both episodes he's mentioned Williams and I'm like, what, why, what? Are, you, why are you attacking <laughs> on the Williams? Here? Oh yeah. I noticed that yeah. he's bringing a Williams to the Williams episode. So <laughs> what if at the end of the series, he goes totally rogue and it's just like, I'm an Aston Martin fan <laughs> it's like for, life. for life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would love he's like go Tifi forever and I'm be like okay there we go yeah but uh yeah Michael definitely a joy to work with 
like you were saying, there's definitely a lot of reasons why people can get into the sport. Like it's been awesome watching Michael figure all of those out for you. And this is kind of a tee up to our next ep- our next conversation topic about why F1 is better than all sports. For you, what are the reasons that makes Formula One the best or so compelling or so exciting if you had to choose like two? Um, one, the simplicity. It's it's a very low barrier to entry versus other sports, again, particularly the American Big Four. It's pretty easy to memorize the names of 20 people and 10 teams at the end of the day. That's very straightforward. If that's the barrier to entry to get started, like that's you can you can pretty easily make your way through that list. I think also just the idea of, you know, qualifying and a race. It's like, I know sprint races are a thing or sprints or they don't like to call them races, whatever. Um, But, (laughs) you know, just the idea of, okay, you need to go as fast as you can for a lap and that'll set where you're going to start on the race day. And then you've got to get, you know, from point A to point B as quickly as possible ahead of everyone else. Very simple concept. There's not a lot you need to know about different types of, for instance, in football, passing and technically blocking people or intercepting. You don't have to worry about knowing all these extra stats. And yes, you can eventually learn who won what or did this or how many overtakes. But I think, yeah, like I said, the the activation energy, so to speak, if I want to sound scientific for a hot second, very, very <laughs> low, right? Like it's super easy to get into. Um, the other reason I think that is really great is Honestly, like there is a certain level of camp that comes with Formula One. And it's funny because a bunch of, again, rich dudes trying to be sophisticated. And then a lot of times it's just pure asininity. Like they completely (laughs) lose their damn minds. They get overly emotional. They freak out over the littlest things. And I just think that, again, it's just very easily compelling even things like that that are really serious, like Zhou Guan Yu's crash at Silverstone a couple weeks ago. You know, it, you can understand. I mean, the, it was that crash was already like by itself wild. But I just remember even before they were able to cut the feed, you saw George Russell picking yeah. himself out of that car and Usain bolting across that gravel. Like he was, you were like, "What is this dude doing?" You know, and the just marshal yeah. chasing him. <laughs> yeah, the marshal chasing him. You've got the mar- You know, you've got Alex Albin in his car, like waving to them to stop helping him and go help Joe. Like. The whole thing, you're just watching it and you could not take your eyes off of a single thing. You've got, then you've got, you know, like Toto and Mercedes yelling at the stewards saying that George should be able to rate the whole thing. Just, I I loved it. I, yeah, I, I, but I think it's a perfect (laughs) example of how the most, a lot of the most compelling parts aren't just the racing. There's, there's just so much more to it in addition to that very important and also very entertaining and great component. Yeah. We just, we talked about it last episode how that was just like one of the best. Once we learned the drivers were okay, that was just one of the best races we've ever seen. Yeah, and one thing to your first point just about sort of the low floor, I think that is amazing in terms of getting people into the sport, but I think it also has one of the highest, if not like no ceiling at all in terms of once you are a fan, the sport in and of itself to understand it and follow it is very simple, but the level of complexity and depth that you can get into once you are a fan is I think like kind of unrivaled when you think about the data, when you think about the logistics, if you just look at the steering wheel and all the buttons that are on it, like most casual fans have no idea what any of those buttons do. But if you were a serious fan, you you could. So there's really no limit to, I feel like how much you can you can dive deeply into it once you're already sort of past the the point of being a fan. 
Oh, totally. Yeah. And, and there's, as you said, 8 million different avenues. I have friends who are into the more engineering tech aspect, and that's great for them. You, you have people like me who love the cultural aspect and everything from, you know, what Lewis, is, Lewis Hamilton is wearing to <laughs> what books the WAGs are reading. Like, I care about that sort of thing. You have people who obviously care about the racecraft and look at the telemetry data all day, every day. You know, it's, but I think that's, yeah, as you're saying, it's just a fabulous part of the sport and not to say it doesn't exist in other sports, but I think it's just so clear cut with formula one. And one of our absolute favorite aspects, and I think probably the top one for me is just the teammate dynamic because so as we've been saying, 10 teams, two drivers. And so when we think of teammates, at least in the way that Americans think of them in yeah, the big four, like basketball, football, you can't succeed without your team. You can't win without your team. And yet in Formula One, we have kind of these teammates because they obviously fight for constructors together. They have largely the same car, a lot of the same management, same resources, but there's just such a huge catch that the American sports do not have. Yeah. Like I feel like F1 flips all of that on its head. Like you have some of it, but then it flips it on its head by having the driver's championship where you know, every driver races for himself. So essentially, if you're on a top team, you need to beat your teammate in order to win that championship. So you're in direct competition with the person you have the same resources as you have, you share the same management with. And there's also the dynamic where your teammate is really the only person with more or less the same car. So it gives the teams a super easy metric to compare them to see who's better. And drivers often need to beat their teammates to show their strength, to keep their seat and it's just a very cutthroat environment. Um, and so I guess on the note of, of teammates, Lily, do you have a teammate duo you would most want to hang out with on the current grid? Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, I thought about this beforehand. And I feel like the problem is I have different teams I want to hang out with for different reasons. Yes. Like I like Carl uh, or, or Carlos and Charles. I'm just curious about what's going down right now to be <laughs> a fly on the wall of a Ferrari debrief. I yeah like they're they're two that I I think would just be pure pandemonium anyway let alone <laughs> what's going on right now with them and with with Ferrari in the season uh the other one what's my kind of underground one that I had I actually feel like I would want to hang out with Kevin and Mick but kind of separately I don't really care about their dynamic together I just am fascinated and I think everyone can admit that in Austria the midfield was entertaining because Kevin and Mick were both entertaining. Like the two of them <laughs> were just wild. <laughs> like, like, I don't know what, what they were doing in the best way. Like the whole thing was just nuts. Um, obviously the other obvious chaos vote is for Yuki and Pierre, which <laughs> yeah, mostly devolve. Yeah. It'll mostly devolve into them teaching each other curse words or very lewd language in one another's language and, you know, just dissolve into laughter the whole time. Um, I know, I know people want me to say McLaren because I do I, I am in particular a real Lando fan, but they're just there's there's stuff going on there. I just feel like it'd be kind of low-key awkward. So I can't I can't say them. And then I feel like George and Lewis would take me to like a yoga retreat or something. <laughs> like I don't know. I, that's yeah. But I, I I can make a compelling argument for most of the grid, except for yes. maybe like like what would I do with Seb and Lance? I would hang out with Seb and not know what to do with Lance. <laughs> like that, you know, it just would be so awkward for poor Lance. <laughs> but yeah <laughs> i know i just named half the grid but anyway continue hanging out with lance might be like pulling teeth i have no idea what i would say so poor uh, guy. my favorite <laughs> my favorite trio to this day is the besties of mick esteban and lance because 
they went to a birthday they did they did uh, celebrated Esteban's birthday last year with their girlfriends their respective girlfriends and I just remember messaging my main group chat and I was like there was probably three words said at this dinner (laughs) between the three of those men like there was absolutely their girlfriends at all the talking they absolutely had not like I don't understand what they talk about together. And yet I know they are the three of them are good friends. <laughs> so It's like so three I dads that are forced to I, hang out. Exactly. I don't get it. Like, I don't know what they discuss at all. But yeah, so I just, I, it's, it's a mystery to me, truly. So you're not sad you didn't get that birthday invite. <laughs> I'm, I, you know what? I'm sad in the sense that I, I have many questions about uh lance and sarah's relationship i also are they even together now like no one really quite knows uh and then i also just want to meet justine i love mixed girlfriend justine Mm -hmm. she is i'm also so intrigued i love the fact that for instance the wag accounts of instagram didn't even pick up that she was at the austrian grand prix until today when they saw her in the background of ted's notebook like that that program (laughs) And it was because someone caught a glimpse of her and then like filmed their TV, but she wasn't seen during, and Mick got P6 and got driver of the day. We do not see her at all. And I just, I love Justine for the lack of Justine content we get. She is yeah. an intriguing character. Yeah. And she see, she has no social media too, right? Or at least no, yeah, no public, public social, social. media. Like she's I, just- I say that as much as Seb has mentored Mick, uh, Seb's wife, Hannah or Hannah has mentored Justine and how to avoid detection in the paddock, <laughs> like, how to sneak underground incredible. into the paddock and see no absolutely one. incredible. It's 10 out of art. 10. Yeah. 10 out of 10. No notes for Justine. I love it. And I, I don't, I don't really need to know more. I just, I just love her presence because we don't know she's there. <laughs> like I just, Anything incredible. I have, incredible. Question, I have a question for you on the wag. So we yeah. hear a lot about like, Lando's girlfriend, obviously Max's girlfriend, et cetera, et cetera. Is there like a tiered system for the wags? Like, do you think they fall into tiers and how they hang out and how people view them? Oh, there are definitely theories as to which one of them's, which one of them has, or which ones have a like various group chats. Like, we do know, <laughs> for instance, that Elena and Sarah, so Lance and Esteban's girlfriends, hang out and they've taken each other's like Instagram photos before. Um, recently Elena also sent, she did like a, a summer collab with a brand oh, and sent, yeah. And sent a sample or, or like, yeah, like a dress to Carmen Montero Munt, which who is George Russell's girlfriend. I was like, I had no idea they talked, but okay. Um, but I, I think that, you know, people have different things that they want in WAGs. I would say I've noticed that for instance, yeah, like younger female fans who, who follow the wags tend to like certain wags around their age versus others. You know, what I, what I value and appreciate as a woman in my late twenties is very different than what I appreciated in my early twenties. So, you know, that's a big reason why I'm a fan of Tiffany Cromwell. I'm like this woman. Yes. I was about to say, who's your favorite wag? I love, well, I love Tiff. Uh, Tiff does her own thing. She's an Olympic cyclist, was her own person long before she met Mr. Valtteri Bottas and she yeah she's just I love that they support each other also in between their races they're either biking or hanging out at a spa or a vineyard which sounds delightful Uh, I also love Carlos's girlfriend Issa I have okay here's my big theory on Issa I've mentioned this elsewhere a couple times but uh, my my big theory of or not theory this is my reason why I love Issa is if you look at Carlos and all of his thirst traps of which there are endless amounts of, of thirst traps 
I I would say if I didn't know anything about him and you asked me, you know, who's who's Carlos's girlfriend, I would say probably like a model. I don't know, you know, something like that. And meanwhile, Issa is, you know, a fashion publicist, also has her own life. And I love that her style is very female gaze focused, like very, the silhouettes she goes for kind of remind me a tiny bit of Audrey Hepburn. I'm not saying she is Mm. Audrey Hepburn, but that sort of like (laughs) lack of care for like if men are looking at her. Uh, that that sort of thing appeals to me. That is such a good yeah. Point. So I, I like. Also, she's my favorite yeah. because I think this is the biggest power move of all time. She does not post him. Yeah, like she'll post on her stories when she's at a race, maybe, and she'll kind of post congrats, but they're never personal photos. So you yeah. could just think she's like a Carlos Sainz fan, yeah. and her grid has zero photos. Oh yeah, of him, they... which just like, I love it. Legendary, Truly. and she yeah, she's just out doing her own thing, has her own style. Uh, she also introduced Carlos to jazz music, which I'm again very intrigued. <laughs> jazz by. music, like, who is- <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> truly, and uh, and yeah, I just yeah, I just really really like her. I, I don't know, I I I appreciate yeah, women who are kind of doing their own thing, and then also just happen to be the significant others of these race car drivers. But I would follow if if Valtteri and Tiff were to break up tomorrow or Carlos and Issa were to break up, I would still follow Issa and Tiffany in earnest for yes. their Instagrams as is, which I think is a good sign because there's quite a few wags where I follow because of who they're connected to professionally. Uh, or, I mean, professionally, like for me, I do this as part of my job. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but but Tiff and, Tiff and Issa, I would truly follow on their own regardless of what was going on. Doesn't Tiffany also do sometimes Botas's like helmet designs. Am I wrong about that? She does his helmet designs. And she actually has said that if she didn't go into professional cycling, she wanted to work in fashion. So a little bit of like design influence. I have, I do critique her outfits quite a bit, but I appreciate (laughs) that she has a point of view and also, yeah, has like other interests outside of cycling and going to F1 races. So Yeah. So maybe this is a good time for you to hit us with some of your hot takes and explain your (laughs) vendetta against Bottega Veneta, mini purses and gladiator (laughs) sandals, your Carlos Sainz outfit theory. We want to hear all of it. (laughs) Yeah. So I guess um, I guess to back up for a second, I guess I should explain engine failure, my newsletter a little bit. Uh, I have a culture newsletter called Engine Failure covers F1 and adjacent culture, I would say. Again, seeing as I just did an issue where I went into IndyCar for, there was no reason to, I just felt like it. Uh, but yeah, it's it's free to sign up. It comes out weekly-ish, again, when I can and when I feel like it. Uh, but essentially, yeah, it covers all aspects of F1. I'd say it actually covers the races themselves the least, typically, unless there's some big thing we need to discuss. But a lot about fashion, about what's online for these drivers. I kind of have almost like recurring segments. So Yeah, for instance, from issue one, there has always been a section called Carlos Sainz Denim Watch. And this started as a joke in my F1, one of my F1 group chats where I was just like, this man really knows how to fill out some denim. Like this was just an ongoing recurring thing in there every race weekend. And so when I started the newsletter, I was like, I'll just put this in there as like kind of more of an aesthetic thing of like, look at Carlos just living his life in his denim. It was all well and good. He was having a good season. It was his first season with Ferrari. So this was 2021. And then there was a race where he showed up in blue chinos. And I was like, I think I made a joke to my friends like, aha, he's in blue chinos. Like something's going to go wrong. And then he like crashed into a wall dramatically. And I was like, oh my God, like it must be the chinos. So then 
So then sure enough, I wrote about this in the newsletter. The next week, he wears the chinos again and like, again, crashes or his car putters out in the race and has to retire. Just something (laughs) so ridiculously odd, especially out of character for how he was doing in that season. So so this became a running joke. And then the big pinnacle of Carlos Sainz Denim Watch and the Carlos Sainz Denim Theory was he started showing up in, uh, particularly in the races post-summer break last year, but in and especially the Middle East, he started wearing this pair of white pants. And every time, <laughs> yep, yeah, we've seen every those. time the white pants have come out, it has meant chaos for someone else on the grid. And it's not just, oh, <laughs> Lance Stroll or Nicholas Latifi crashed. It's like a driver does something very out of character for them. And it's anyone but Carlos, which can include Charles Leclerc, <laughs> can also be cursed <laughs> by the white pants. So again, this was not at all like it's a superstition but it's also kept working out and it's also gotten infinitely more complex as time has gone on so for instance yeah sure enough he wore his denim all four days in silverstone and won his first grand prix (laughs) against all odds and hilariously though because people were like oh he's worn his denim all four days before i was like but on the first day he wore like a navy sweater instead of his Ferrari kit. So maybe that was it. This, <laughs> this is getting deeply weekend, superstitious. <laughs> yeah. This past weekend in the Austrian Grand Prix, wore denim all four days, but wore a gray polo on Thursday. So we're now calling it the polo of doom. And he, yeah, his engine blew up and he was like engulfed in flames on the side of the Austrian hill. So I, yeah, so I, I, it's it's just like a fun, funny thing to keep up with. And people like tweet me with photos if I haven't seen so them early funny. in the morning. Like people are very into it. And it's just fun to kind of try and find photos of him daily, like w- what to see what he's wearing. Um, but yeah, but that's, that's Carlos Sainz Denim Theory. And then other than that, I just like to make fun of a lot of influencer culture. So I really hate, yeah, Bottega's mini Jody bag. It is everywhere. <laughs> Every influencer on both this side of the pond as well as the other side of the pond always has a Bottega mini Jody on them. And I haven't ever been in the presence of one, but I've heard they don't even really hold much. No. So I'm like, this is an impractical bag that's like several thousand dollars. And it's, yeah, it's everywhere. Uh, but yeah, but basically, I eventually decided to talk about it after I think it was five or six of the WAGs and and or like F1 adjacent. So like a sibling of someone or this person all brought Bottega mini Jodies to Monaco. And I was like, that's it. We have the to. last straw. Like, I was like, I've declared this an official <laughs> nemesis. <laughs> war, waging war on the Bottega mini Jody. Um, but yeah, but, but a lot of it is just uh, engine failure is me kind of making fun of things or, or like poking fun at things that uh, just bother me or that I personally don't like, you know, but obviously in a, in a lighthearted way. One of my favorite lines of all time, I think I say this to Sarah and Chessa like often whenever I see this is you had a line somewhere about the chokehold that gladiator sandals have on (laughs) rich European women. And I have not been able to get that out of my head. It's so silly. Yeah, they are. I don't get it at all. I'm like, it, what did I miss in like European history class that makes these women? Oh, goodness. Yeah, no, it it, it like it just it fascinates me to no end because I just feel like, you know, we had that we had that moment in 2009 where we loved a gladiator sandal and then Americans moved on. You know, we yeah, have many exactly. other style faux pas, but we, we were over it pretty quickly here. 
generally speaking. In terms of the Carlos denim watch, we were dying to ask you, we're just so interested in the Ferrari dynamic right now. Chessa is a Ferrari fan and we have kind of our own thoughts on the team order situation and kind of Matias saying it's Ferrari as an institution that comes first and people, the Tifosi have varying interpretations of what that means. And we actually had some people message us basically saying like, how could you ever defend Ferrari strategy at Silverstone? Like they obviously need to be backing Charles. This is a disaster. So what do you think of it generally? And what do you feel like the vibes are right now? Ooh, Ferrari. I will say I like Ferrari. So I'm not like a hardcore, I'm not a Tifosi like member or anything, <laughs> but I have no issues with Ferrari. So I'm, I'm coming at this as like a more neutral party where like I root it. If Ferrari does well, I'm excited, right? Like I'm not upset or I'm not feeling cursed or anything. It's just like good for Ferrari. Yeah. When, Same, yeah. when Charles won, I was like, that is awesome for Charles. I like Charles. I also actually do like Carlos uh, and not just because of the whole pants situation and that he brings me endless joy in in uh, fueling my superstitions. But I, you know, my thing is overall, it, I, it, I think the buck has to stop with leadership itself. So I don't mind personally team orders as long as that is communicated to the, I mean, you know, how much we know is a different story, but it's obvious, it is obvious to me that Ferrari's issues with indecision and just sort of kind of botching it strategically are coming out right now. And I think that's my biggest issue. So I actually don't have a problem. Again, I've, I've kind of said this before in the newsletter and, and elsewhere. Um, I, you know, I look at this as what's interesting about the dynamics right now is Charles knows that he is their golden boy. He is their OTP. He is there for the long haul. He's trying to be a company man, right? Like he wants to be Ferrari till the day he dies. Uh, and because of that, Charles, I think generally, and I'm not even saying this from a place of entitlement, it's just he knows he's he's their guy. He runs under the assumption that they will prioritize him above all else or no matter what's going on, not just because championship this or that. He knows that that he is their golden ticket. So I think that the problem for Charles is he sometimes doesn't get as aggressive as he could, especially when, again, leadership, Mattia, like all these other people are just being super indecisive and unclear and confusing and weird. Charles kind of still tries to defer to them. What I think, what I will say when we talk, that's yeah, such a and good what point. I will say about Carlos, and this is when we were talking earlier about seeing Michael on the podcast, figure out what matters to him as a person. I'm someone who has had to spend a lot of life advocating for myself because no one else was going to do it. And Carlos has his own series of issues but I can't be mad at him when, again, Ferrari leadership just does not have their shit together. And they're they're not, they're giving mixed signals, they're not giving him a clear answer. I don't blame him for kind of stepping in and being like, you know what, I'm gonna make a decision because none of y'all who are paid tons of money to do this are gonna do it. So I I would be annoyed if they very clearly said, Carlos, you like absolutely throughout this race need to be behind Charles. And then he was like, fuck this. I'd be more like, oh, this is mad drama. But like you know, even in even Silverstone, they were still kind of wishy-washy. The whole race, both Charles yeah. and Carlos were having to like call in and be like, hi, um, do we have a plan? <laughs> like, what letter is the plan? Uh, and they kept being like, well, you know, we'll, we'll get plan E, plan for E for explosion. Yeah. And it's like, uh, yeah, like I was like, are they going to ever actually give them a response? Like both of them. Again, I, I don't take Charles this either. So I don't necessarily blame Carlos in this current period where Ferrari's being, again, just so strategically indecisive. 
I don't blame him for saying, you know what? Fuck it. I know I'm not the golden guy. If I don't say something for myself, no one else is going to like all about Charles. And like, we all know it. And again, that's no one's like, you know, it's just that that's how it is on that team. So I'm not mad at Carlos being like, I'm going to take advantage of this situation in a way that makes best sense for me. Now, I think if, if Ferrari, they've said, you know, Mattia just said that he claims that they're going to keep this whole, like they can fight it out mentality through the summer break. So I'm curious to see, you know, post August who, if they prioritize someone who feels upset about that and how they react. So obviously it's looking like Charles will be the one prioritized sooner or later. And I will be curious to see how Carlos handles that. I think Charles is definitely overall the better driver. I think that they are better matched than most people make it sound. And so, yeah, I think I mostly, like I said, I just, I, I got to stick up for Carlos in the sense that, hey, if there's complete chaos, I'm not really mad that he has said, if you guys aren't going to throw anyone's hat into the ring, why can't it be my own? You know, definitely. Yeah. But I, I, I am very, I'm very curious to see what happens post summer. Yes. I, I just, I live for a little bit of spice. So I'm like, oh yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> like what speaking, are, what are they going to do? my language. I, um, one time for New Year's Eve, for New Year's, my resolution was to stir the pot. So I definitely cannot wait to see what the reactions are on these team orders. So while we are on the teammate drama, I feel like I would be remiss not to talk about some feuds. We have to talk about Rosberg and Hamilton, obviously a little bit in the past, but very, very important. And we'd love your your take on it too. For those who are not aware, these two were teammates. They literally hated each other and were not on speaking terms in Monaco in 2014, Rosberg allegedly read, read purposely caused the yellow fat flag by going off the track in Q3, ruining Lewis's quality, and then they both wrecked each other in Spain in 2016. Toto threatened to fire them both. They literally had to have rules of engagement written to their contracts with financial penalties. Um, it was an entire mess. So, Lily, besides this one, or maybe this is your favorite, what is your favorite historic team rivalry where things have gotten super spicy? Or do you think maybe like this pairing right now, Charles and Carlos could turn into this? Ooh, well, I do. I do love uh, Rosberg and Hamilton for the sake that you can tell that no matter how much time passes, Lewis Hamilton will always have at least a small piece of Nico Rosberg's mind, right? He is going to live in there (laughs) rent free for the rest of Nico Rosberg's life. And I remember I once read a profile. I so wish I could remember the author and the publication where it was a profile, a feature of uh, on Nico. And yeah, he was asked about it. He gave this kind of weird smarmy answer about Lewis. And even the journalist was kind of like, dude, what is it? It's been like five, six years, you got to get a world championship and retire. Like, what's your deal? <laughs> like, because it was just like, and so I, I think that that, that th- there was just, you know what I liked about that particular rivalry? There was so much low grade pettiness, like even them throwing the water bottles in the, in the, you know, the room after the race, like just little things where you're like, oh, that is juicy. I also think they're, story is so wild in that they were childhood friends right like they had raised each other used to be besties like you know that was kind of the wild part of that whole story is that it wasn't just two randos who then end up hating each other these were people who were friends at one point like very good friends and it just completely crumbled um other rivalries i mean everyone loves senna and prost that's just i just remember watching videos of them and both of them are just such good racers and have such but such different mentalities to racing Obviously, Hill versus Schumacher is kind of like 
a very dirty classic <laughs> in terms of just like, oh my God. I, I, I've watched that tape, you know, of Schumacher obviously crashing and, and fucking everything up for, for Damon Hill. Um, it's, it's made even more complex. Can you explain for people who might not be familiar yeah, with it? Basically in a chance, it was in the nineties in a championship battle. And in the last race, basically depending on who you talk to, uh, Schumacher and Hill crash because Schumacher's ahead in the points, he gets to win the championship essentially. And Hill lost out. And, and there are many people who believe that Schumacher purposely crashed into Hill knowing that he obviously at the higher points going into the race and that if they both didn't finish, he would win. Uh, the more passionate Schumacher fans will say, no, Michael was just a man who was just so into racing that he went a little bit over the limit and it just happened to be a crash. So there's a lot of, and there's a lot of iconic yeah, imagery of them like stalking around the track angrily after this went down. Uh, so that's one. Yeah, I, I have a lot of, there's a lot of like minor ones that are just, I actually like a lot of like individual races or shows of pettiness. So I love, for instance, this is like classic me. I ate up in the Austrian Grand Prix how Fernando Alonso finger wagged at Yuki in the middle yes. of this race. <laughs> we yeah. like, love this. This is like Fernando Alonso. I it wasn't until recording this the the podcast, you know, choosing sides that I have always known that you know Fernando Alonso is a shitster, but the number of F1 <laughs> scandals, big and small, that he is involved in is astronomical. And I didn't realize that till I kept having to be like, oh you know, talking about a driver and be like, oh, and then he had this feud with this guy, Fernando. We'll talk about him later. Like, and then we got to Fernando and I was like, you know, that guy, Fernando, who's come up like 17 times because he just fights like everyone. We've <laughs> arrived at his episode. Because uh, obviously Alpine is the middle of the season uh, or the middle of our, our podcast season, I should say. But yeah, like, like him finger wagging while going like 150 miles an hour for no reason to prove a point to this like 21 year old is the most hysterical thing I've ever seen. <laughs> like I, I was that, that to me is like the pinnacle of just F1 drama in terms of like the day-to-day -day things that go on that kind of make the sport very, very fun. The age differences are so huge too. Like I, for one, at least a few episodes, we had a little back and forth. Um, Sarah and I did because I like am Stan Alonso. I think he's like so cool and such a great like when I grew up watching like Alonso was awesome. But sadly, like I feel like I had rose colored lenses and he is a little bit sassier than we would expect. So I totally see that it's, it's sad for me. But the age difference is like for me, I would expect him to be like the wise old man following the rules kind of like an Uncle Seb vibe. I was gonna say he has not got that yet. Seb is, uh, I, I always like to say my limits, I can instantly tell when someone started watching F1 by asking them their opinion of Seb because people. <laughs> yes, yeah, I was just going to into being a wise yeah, exactly. <laughs> like I have, I have a couple good friends who, and a lot of them actually also have a European parent or both European parents who got them in F1. And they're a lot wearier of the current activist, like do good or dad Seb. Yeah. Whereas newer fans, like, you know, like me, I kind of had to learn the history of Seb because I was like, oh, he's so great. He's uncle, you know, he's like, he's like mixed, like weirdly younger uncle who's, you know, younger than all the other uncles. Like he's probably the half sibling uncle. So he's like 10 years younger than everyone else. But, and then everyone's like, no, he was so obnoxious. Yeah. And you see the donuts, him spinning and like yep. him doing all this weird yelling. Cause that's what Red Bull does. I don't know. It's like the weirdest, uh, yeah, transformation. But Fernando seems to, I mean, he has older, he seems a little more tired, but still, I will say though, the one thing I believe Fernando has going for him 
is he continues to date age-appropriate women. And to me, that is a sign <laughs> of maturity for a 40-year-old man to be dating a 40-year-old woman. It is sad that that is where the bar is, but we are going to take it for him. <laughs> and um, one thing I'm really interested in is kind of how these past team rivalries stay in the consciousness of the teams. And some of these principles have just been on the grid for forever. So Mattia, in that Austria press conference, when he was asked about team orders, he mentioned Schumacher Barrichello from like the early 2000s and said it was here where people who don't know, they were longtime Ferrari teammates and Barrichello right at the end of the race was told to let Schumacher through for the win. And it was a huge scandal. Fans were booing. I think he got threatened to be fired or something if he didn't let Schumacher pass. Like it was an absolute disaster. And it's 20 years later and Mattia is still citing that as a reason why they're kind of traumatized about team orders. We talked about this earlier with like Checo and Max and how they're traumatized about the Red Bull crash with Danny and Baku. And so do you think, having just done that Mercedes deep dive, do you think that that Nico Lewis is going to kind of impact like how they deal with Lewis and George? And are they just, is that fear like always going to be Oh there? yeah, I think, I mean, you look at the pendulum swing between a Nico Rosberg and then a Valtteri Bottas, two very different guys, very different drivers. And no one for a second, I don't think, really believed, even in times where things have gotten saucy and Bottas has been salty on the radio and, and elsewhere, I think he's just a, he was just a very different teammate to Lewis Hamilton. And I do think it's actually really sweet that they have a genuine friendship and that still lasts. And, and they obviously like, I love the fact that the only two events Lewis Hamilton went to after he lost in 2021, you know, lost the championship was getting knighted by, by oh, Prince Charles <laughs> and then going to Val's goodbye party at Mercedes. Like that to me, I'm like, you know what? That's a really Aww. sweet, like, you know, test of friendship there and just, just sportsmanship and, you know, understanding. Um, so I think I'm interested to see, cause we do talk about this a little bit in the Mercedes episode of how, you know, Lewis and George, I mean, look, they're 13 years apart. They represent very different generations of, of racing. Um, I do think it's fascinating and it, it wasn't until we talked to Bird Pinkerton, the, um, you know, the, the, the Vox writer and, and William super fan about the fact that they're both a little bit like politicians, but in different ways. And so I'm interested yeah. to see what happens if they get a car that works consistently and there are more chances for both of them to podium and win consistently, how that's going to factor in. Cause you've got Lewis who he just wants that eighth and then he wants to piece out of there. But then you've got George who he's got hopefully a long <laughs> road ahead of him. So it's, it's, I'm fascinated to see what happens if that car can do more. I mean, even with Ferrari, we're seeing this right last year, there was a lot more camaraderie between and I'd say there's it's there's a complete lack of it now, but you know Charles and and Carlos last year were buds because they were both in this car that wasn't quite working the way it, they wanted Brilliant. it to for most of the season. Yeah, they were able to bond over the fact that like shit was still mad bleak <laughs> for for Ferrari, and I think yeah. Merck, you know, George and and Lewis can similarly do that now. But once yeah, once you're winning all the time, uh, shit gets very very real. So um, I'm I'm curious, but I I don't I think. If there were ever going to be rivalry, a real or a real rivalry between George and Lewis, the games would be a lot sneakier. The two of them would be a lot stealthier with it. It wouldn't, I don't think, be as. I think they're both not like going to be slinging mud in the same very overt way. Because yeah. I think Lewis is older, smarter, and also again, older people. You're just tired. <laughs> again, I'm I'm like much younger than Lewis and I'm already tired. So I can see him just being like, yo, dude, like calm down. And I, I think that both of them are a little bit more sly 
and would yes. be a little bit smarter about it. Yeah. I think the politician comment is very apt. And I also loved, I forget if it was you or Michael who said it, that George so, sort of reminds you a little bit of an accountant, like him showing up in his suit oh, yeah. to, with yeah, like, the Toto comment. Essentially yeah, his, like, yeah. Yeah, they both seem almost a little rehearsed in a way that's definitely different from the other drivers. You feel like they have a level, like a sheen of polish to them that's just different. You can tell it in like every press conference. Oh, yeah. And I think, too, they've had to be polished for different reasons. I mean, Lewis obviously knows like what comes with being the first and only black driver on the grid. And also someone who, if you're going to speak up about social causes and all this other stuff, you're going to have to come prepared. George, I think it's more, yeah, it's a little bit more upbringing and a little more, I don't know. I think, yeah, I think he's, I think in another life, George Russell would 100% be like a Hugh Granty a la Love Actually <laughs> Prime Minister, you know? Yes. If things had gone a little differently for George Russell, where would he be now? Um, but uh, yeah, I think they both can, they both know how to uh, how to pull that out when they need to. Yeah. I had a question uh, sort of on along the lines of the age differences and whatnot. We got into a little bit of a debate on this in previous episodes and I, I totally understand, like Hamilton is going for an eighth world championship, all of that. And I, I will preface this by saying I love Alonso. I love Seb. I love what they bring to F1. I love what they bring in terms of like culture, entertainment. They're still racing well. But I wonder if they're like, when is the time to sort of like hang up the helmet and make way potentially for newer, younger talent to enter the sport? There are only 20 seats, only two seats per team, like does there come a time maybe when it's, you know, it's time to say, okay, let me make way. I've had my glory days and, uh, you know, I'm not winning world champions anymore. Yeah, I think I once heard, I forget which driver said it. I saw it on a video, you know, years ago was about this idea of, you know, the second you aren't fighting for the win, it's time to to hang it up. Um, so I think that's like the first layer of it is like, if you're not excited, then, eh, you know, I, I for example, I don't really know how... I don't think he he hates it, but Seb, for instance, again, just seems tired or he's got other priorities at yeah. this point. I would I will be super upset the day he retires because he's just I think he had so much of the grid on so many levels. Um, but I don't know if it's one size fits all. I don't really I will say I was a, like just sort of did a deep sigh when Alonzo came back because I don't know. He already retired. He did the big show <laughs> of retiring and like blah, blah, blah. And he was all upset with McLaren and yada, yada, yada. So I was like, okay, we closed that chapter. And then for him to re-enter was like, oh my God, like you're back. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I will say he hasn't annoyed me as much this season. Again, the finger wag is just like a perfect example of like whatever, but I have certain drivers where there are people I want to see in F1 or I would love to just be given that chance. So there are certain drivers where I'm like, look, if I have to sacrifice your seats that that driver can get into F1, I will do it. And there's other drivers where I'm like, absolutely not their seat needs to be safe like you know i'm very like factory <laughs> okay who are you sacrificing if you need to cut some of the grid who I are mean, you sacrificing look, I, I don't think this is a surprise nicholas latifi he he knows what? He, he knows <laughs> what oh, yeah. no, who would, who would be the he never got his chance yeah. no yeah uh <laughs> oh he's had a lot yeah. of chances he's just not a good driver. i'm so sorry yeah i uh but yeah like he's one where i'm like look nice dude i'm glad he likes his nutella i'm glad he's got a lawyer girl girlfriend who just passed the New York bar exam a couple months ago and like that's great and all but like if that means Oscar Piastri gets a seat or like I get to laugh at 
I wouldn't say I want Logan Sargent in F1, but I just am like laughing at this, again, this like extended bit I've created about this F2 driver and he is in the Williams Young Driver program. So I'm like, okay, there's like four or five other people I want to see in F1 and like Nikki would need to be sacrificed to do that. Um, I could do without Lance, but we all know that uh, Daddy Stroll holds the purse strings over there. So that's a long shot. So they'll be out the day Lance wants to be out which who knows. Um, but yeah, Fernando's one of those bubble ones where if they're like, Ooh, Fernando could retire a second time. I'd be like, fine, fine. He's had his time. He'll be, yeah, he'll get it together and do whatever he's going to do. I don't know. One of those. Yeah. And there's a couple that I think get trickier where I'm like, like for instance, there have been discussions this season of um, Daniel Ricardo and what my friends refer to as the took the words out of our mouth my friends friends, so i'm sure you've heard the term getting van dorned after stoffel van dorn at mclaren my friends say getting dan dorned is their term for it (laughs) and so i yeah like the problem is mclaren like for as much as zach brown keeps being like no we love daniel he's gonna stick out his contract i'm like sir there are so many rumors there's like six different young drivers who are in the mix be it pato award and colton herda from indycar yeah, you've got Oscar Piastri. Oscar Piastri is quote unquote up for like seats on half, you know, half the grid at this point. Everyone's like, yeah, we'd give Oscar a chance. I'm like this poor, poor kid just, he just wants to know, drive an F1 car and they the just wings. are not letting him. <laughs> Truly. And they're trying to like, Alpine keeps trying to put him on their social media. I'm like, this kid does not give a shit about your TikTok. Like he just wants to be in a car. Um, yeah. So like, yeah, Daniel Ricardo is is one where I, I, I see the arguments for and against and I... Again, I'm very intrigued because I and it's weird trying to record a podcast in the middle of a season when silly season's coming up on the grid <laughs> where I'm just sitting here like, you know, I, I, my my senior producer, Yohai, kind of makes fun of me because I am like, we got to cover all our bases. We got to be prepared for Daniel to be on Team McLaren for forever. We got to be prepared for him to be dropped tomorrow. <laughs> like we've got to be prepared for Oscar Piastri to potentially have a seat. Uh, so. So, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, but I'd say Daniel and, and Fernando are a little bit more like, okay, if I see who would get the seat and I like them, then I'll be like, you gotta, you gotta potentially uh, make some room. But got it. Daniel's a hard one though. Daniel's a really hard one because I, I get, I get the joy he adds. I get the what would American fans do? That's I the know. only thing we've latched onto. We have been struggling really hard with this reality for him as well. Yeah. Um. So now that we've talked a lot about, like, obviously all the drivers, the ones that you maybe you would want to boot under duress, like hot seat question. Who was your favorite driver? We're going to end with this. It's just like, who do you got to go? Yeah. With? Um, I'm a bodice babe, Valtteri bodice. Yeah. He's going to be my, uh, How refreshing. Yeah, he's, I have a bodice babe t-shirt I wore to the Canadian Grand Prix <laughs> this year. And I, I love Val on the track. I love Val off the track. Um, Tim, Tim, here's what I say. Uh, Daniel Ricardo is the guy you want before you go to therapy. Valtteri Bottas is who you want if you've gone and you had a good therapist. You know, that's like Val. I love that he cares as much about Tiffany's career as his own. I love that they have shared interests. I love that he's kind of grown as a person away from the track. And he seems to have had like a very reflective experience. And like, you know, in, in, in retrospect, you know, kind of post Mercedes career. So Valtteri Bottas, you know, and he's he's holding his own over at Alpha. I gotta him. say, he yes. he's been a good mentor to Joe. Like the team really loves him. I love that they treat my girl Tiff well, because uh, that's also what I care about. Um, but yeah, but I yeah. 
bodice babe 100 i think he slept on by a lot of people and uh the, the, the girls who know, know. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, the girls who know, know all have his special butt picture as their screensaver. <laughs> oh, I have. Oh, I have. I have it framed in my room. Like, oh, perfect. I have the bot ass photo. Yes. Like, a <laughs> we dude, would expect no less. <laughs> there was a culture shift when that came out. So, you know, it needed to be done. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lily, this has been so incredible. We really appreciate the time and amazing conversation and insights as always. Everyone, please go check out her podcast, Choosing Sides. Subscribe to her newsletter, Engine Failure, and all of the rest. Thank you so much. Thank you.